Hey, this is your host, Jeremiah Latimo, and this is Gates of Perception. The totality of the universe is it's just perception. And uh, it's how we perceive things. And uh, there are no facts, only interpretations. The, the psychical events are facts, are realities. And when you observe the stream of images within, you observe an aspect of the world of the world within and so you see the man who is going by the external world by the influences of the external world say society or perceptions sense perceptions thinks that he he is more valid don't relate yourself to any person anything any idea tell me Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. So today, this episode is going to be a little bit about my own backstory and how I got to where I am now and what I'm doing now and, you know, just a little bit about my journey. So recently through my Instagram story, I had shared something detailing about my own personal experience with the family I grew up in and, you know, kind of my childhood. And um, I received a lot of like messages that were kind of shocked. You know, I felt like people felt like they could relate to my experience and that brought some level of comfort. But for me, it was shocking because I was like, whoa, like nothing in my childhood was remotely reflective of the things that I believe now and the things that I value now and the things that are really important to me today. Um, there was very, very little space for um, some of the things that I, you know, talk about. Uh, so, so yeah, I just wanted to share that a little bit about my journey and how I got here, a little bit about my childhood and not making it a, you know, like a, like a trauma dump, <laughs> but just talking about like some key points in my life that uh, brought me to where I am now. Uh, so yeah, let's let's get into it. So first off, I don't think a lot of people know this, but I was born in Congo. So I was born in Kinshasa, which is the capital of DR Congo, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and so the time I was born, there was a genocide taking place that was filmed about and has a lot of documentaries and stories around, which is the Rwandan genocide. And the reason that impacted me is because my mother is Rwandanese. And so during that time, it was very difficult for her to be present, right? Because the Rwandan genocide is about a clash between two brother clans. And so the thing about living in Africa is that people identify you by your features. And so it's difficult for you to, you know, come across a, let's say a rival clan and they're like, aren't you so-and-so? And you try to deny it. You can't really deny it because your long face, your long neck, your big eyes kind of give you away. So this is difficult for my mother to be in because her face like told you who she was. And so when two tribes are clashing against each other and they're literally killing each other, um, it's scary to even show your face, 
right? So my mom was always in situations to where she had to hide. She had to, um, you know, have me and my older brother kind of do things for her that uh, she couldn't do for herself. So I didn't realize until a couple of years, uh, a couple of years ago, I did some research because I was thinking to myself, I was like, whoa, because this was around, you know, uh, COVID. And I thought to myself, I was like, wow, like imagine the, imagine what happens to the children that are born around this time, right? Where there's nothing but uh, panic, isolation, there's a lack of connection, there's a crisis of connection, there is a lot of illness going on, right? There's a lot of deaths happening. And so I was like, wow, imagine the child born, you know, in 2020 or in 2021, that must have been really intense because they're absorbing, they're absorbing the energy of their environment as they're coming into it. Um, and not just the energy of their mom um, and their, her feelings and her emotions, but just the energy of the collective and the collective, uh, where the collective is at at that time. And I was like, whoa, like what was going on at the year I was born? And I already knew about the genocide, but when I looked at Congo specifically, there were already two civil wars that took place before I left. So I left in 99, I was around five years old. Um, but before I left, there were two civil wars in the country I was born. And so I, so I thought about that and I was like, wow, I was born in this environment that was dealing with a lot of violence, killing, genocide and betrayal. And so that kind of helped me tie into other things that I was kind of like, reflecting on as far as like how that might have impacted me as a as a baby and so it did drastically impact me because I don't remember anything from before seven I don't remember Africa in any sense of it um, my mom has pictures she has some pictures but I don't remember being in Africa um, so that kind of told me like wow it must have been very very traumatic for me just a lot uh, because I don't recall anything. I left when I was five, so I feel like maybe a lot of people don't remember things before the age of seven, but I know people that remember things when they were like five or four around that age, but I just didn't remember anything. And I feel like I kind of blocked those memories out. So yeah, we transitioned from there because uh, we were refugees and uh, we transitioned from there and we moved to Oregon. So we had a host family kind of like waiting for us taking us in this is a sweet elderly you know white couple that was um we called them grand grandpa jay and grandma z they took us in and they helped my family and my parents kind of get accommodated to the life in america and so my parents had to go through a lot of different barriers like you know just interacting and learning how to get a job and uh, learning how to work in the environment and learning how to speak the language as well. So there was a lot of challenges and hurdles that my parents were going through. And there was a culture shock that I had, which was just being in an environment with, I was in Portland, Oregon. So that was a, at that time, I don't know how much has changed, but it was a very predominantly white area. And so I'm just dark skinned kid and all my family is dark skinned. And it was just, new for me i don't think before then i had ever seen you know a pale white-skinned person and so it was just very very different being in that environment and not knowing how to interact not knowing how to engage but at the same time not feeling i was really young so not feeling isolated 
which was new. It, I didn't really feel isolated until I got older. So as I as I was young, it was just kind of felt like, oh, this is just they're just kind of different from us, but it was kind of like an adjustment. And so we lived there, I think, for about two, three years, and then we moved to uh Richmond, Virginia. And so in Richmond, Virginia, I was around, again, another very dominantly white area. Um, I remember having another black friend in school. I remember his name too, Ross. Um, But he was like the only other black kid I can remember. And so this was something that I started to grapple with and kind of started to hit me as I got older. In my teens, I was maybe like 12, 13. I didn't know how to engage with myself as a black boy, like as a black teen. I didn't know how to engage with myself because everyone I was surrounded by, like I was taking in information from my environment and from that environment, I was like, wait, in order to fit in, because I didn't want to be, you know, outcasted, even though my, my skin color already kind of like ostracized me in a way, but I didn't want I didn't want that to happen. So I tried to prevent it and create this sense of belonging by trying to adapt myself to the environment I was in. So that looked like me putting a lot of gel in my hair and kind of forming it into kind of like a like a white boy haircut. And I did a lot of other things I can't remember, but I was just trying to belong like as a teen, I felt like so isolated from the people around me. I didn't even know how to engage with the girls that I was like crushing on or anything like that because I was, I felt so different from everyone and I didn't know how people would like relate to me. Um, and I didn't know how they were relating to me. I didn't know what they really thought of me. And that was like really scary for me as a kid. And so then we moved to Atlanta, like the dirty South, and I'm surrounded by black people and i'm like experienced another culture shock so i've had i had a lot of culture shocks at a very very young age like a genocide everyone around you is dying and killing each other and then like i'm thrown into a whole new world and then from that new world i'm thrown into a community that looks like me and now I'm in this community in Atlanta. It was like fourth grade when I got to Atlanta and I didn't know what it meant to be black. I didn't know how to engage with my own people. Like it was so weird for me. And I remember at that time around fourth grade, I still had a struggle speaking English. Like, like I couldn't speak the language. Like my mom at home, we spoke French and Swahili. So it was different for me to kind of adapt to English because I didn't speak it that well. But then at home, we started practicing English more. And so what happened is I started to lose French, but I still gained, I still kept Swahili. So at at school, it was difficult because I was still breaking, I was still breaking up words. Like I would say a sentence in English, but five of those words were in Swahili. And so I was trying to like even grapple with that. Like, are people hearing me? Can they understand me? And so it was it was really difficult, not just a language barrier, but just like the the barrier that I felt between me and people that were just like me, that looked just like me. And that was probably the most hardest thing to adjust to um, because I didn't know what it meant to be black in a way. 
I remember very early on, like having like my shoes made fun of because I would wear certain shoes. And um, there's a the thing about black people is we have a really we have a really strong obsession with like aesthetic and sneakers and clothes. So we're constantly judging people based on, you know, their external appearance. And um, I know other cultures do this, but I think black people have a really emphasis on like, oh, what, what, what shoes you got on? Right. Especially early on as teens, like. And I know, I remember living in Virginia and Portland, that was never really a thing. Like nobody made fun of your shoes. But when you get into these black communities, they'll roast you. They'll make fun of you for having the wrong pair of shoes on, for wearing sketchers, for wearing hiking boots to class, right? And my mom used to kind of dress me up. So I would have sometimes church shoes on, right? Like loafers. <laughs> so, so I didn't know that that was something that was going to actually lead me to be rejected, lead me to be ostracized, lead me to be made fun of in a way. And so that was also difficult to deal with because I was kind of like expressing from my own authenticity and then to be in this community and then be rejected, kind of be made fun of, be made like ostracized was also like deeply traumatic. And I don't think that we really make time to understand or i think we really underestimate the level of trauma that as teens we experience like being in high school and being in middle school and trying to fit in and trying to belong there's a deeply traumatic experience that we have because as teens we're not really connected to our values not really connected to our truths so people bully other people people make fun of other people people cast people out like you'll see kids sitting you know at a lunch table by themselves every day for the rest of their high school uh for the rest of their high school years and that's deeply traumatizing you think about isolating a child at 14 years old and they're sitting at a table by themselves with no friend no connection and that's deeply traumatic I think we underestimate how strong those experiences are and how deeply they impact our nervous systems, especially as teens when we don't have the tools to actually regulate through those experiences. So for me, I was going through things like that. I didn't know who to sit with. I didn't know who to hang out with. And um, it was really hard because at home, I was kind of dealing with the same thing. My family was very patriarchal and had a lot of internalized misogyny because their upbringing was very traditional in the way that a man is supposed to be this way and a woman is supposed to be this way and they were also christian so that's just another layer of it but very conservative and you know you shouldn't have a girlfriend until you're 19 or you know the girl that you sleep with is supposed to be your wife all of these things that were kind of ingrained into me at a very young age and kind of imposed on me and kind of using Bible scriptures and weaponizing them to kind of control me to be who my parents needed me to be. And so it was really, really hard when I was trying to discover myself, I was trying to discover who I wanted to be. And my parents are kind of following this traditional route where it's like, you have to be a doctor. And if you're not a, you know, if you're not choosing a secure job, you're a failure, right? And kind of weaponizing their sacrifices. Like my parents sacrificed a lot for me and my siblings to have the things that we have today, to be able to do the things that we do today. 
And that was really, really weaponized uh, when I was a kid and still today. Like hearing your parents say, I sacrificed and did all this for you. And like, you're not, you're not grateful for that. Like you're not appreciating that because we're discovering ourselves. We're trying to create happiness in our own terms. And that, like I felt guilty for a very, very long time. You know, when I wanted to be an artist, when I wanted to be a writer, when I wanted to be a poet, when I wanted to be a designer, and these weren't secure jobs. You know, I was a freelancer for some time, but these weren't secure jobs. These were things that were like up in the air, you know, depending on how well I marketed myself. And so I felt guilty for wanting to pursue those things. I felt guilty for not wanting to go to college. I felt guilty for in their terms, not wanting to take advantage of the opportunity that I had. And for me, I thought I was taking advantage of the opportunity that I had. And so that was something that I was constantly dealing with, especially when it came to grades and like doing well in school. I mean, school is hard as a teenager, it's hard, but I, I would always feel bad because, you know, failure really wasn't an option for me as a kid, especially when my parents are kind of like, holding up their sacrifices, kind of like hovering them above my head and um, reminding me that, you know, we did all this for you. So you have to, you have to succeed. Like there's no, there's failure is not an option. Like you have to succeed. We went through so much shit to get you here, to get you this experience, to get you this experience of being in school and receiving an, an education. Like and kind of reminding me about their own experiences as children, because theirs was completely different from mine, you know, having to walk five miles to school. And so my parents had a really, really difficult childhood. So both my parents had their fathers, my grandfather passed away at a very young age, but they all had like a lot of siblings. So my grandmother, their mothers had to kind of like maintain the household and kind of provide and be providers at, you know, at a time that really wasn't convenient, you know, when you have 10 plus kids or four plus kids and now having to provide for all of these children, uh, it's really difficult. So everything that I was experiencing on my end as, as a child now living in America was really, really um, like a luxury, like it was luxury compared to what my parents had experienced. And so that was something that my parents didn't shy away from letting me know, but it made it difficult for me because I just didn't feel that I could make any mistakes. That was kind of reinforced through little things that I would do even as a kid, kind of dropping and spilling milk. I would be yelled at, I would be beat. Um, you know, a lot of verbal abuse, a lot of uh, physical abuse as well, which I think is really underestimated how deeply that impacts the nervous system when you're being beat with a belt, um, when you're constantly being harmed anytime you make a mistake, like that deeply traumatized me. And I didn't really understand that till a few years ago um, because I have a perfectionist wound. I have a fear of failing that was shaped by these experiences that I had very early on. With that, it was hard for me to even be in school because that level of pressure that I had to perform well, I just said, fuck it. Like I didn't want anything to do with it. When I was a teen, I 
started about sixth grade, I was like killing it in school. I was like a part of all of the clubs. I was like straight A's and B's and I was just crushing it. But then there's something that, I don't know what happened about seventh grade or eighth grade. I just stopped caring. And I was really, really smart. I'm still really, really smart, (laughs) but I just didn't put any effort into trying to succeed in this environment. And so as I started getting older, what happened was my own level of intelligence started to really emerge. And I didn't like the way that I was being taught. I didn't like the system. It just didn't work for me. Like I couldn't contort myself to like be this good student that listened and like was um, doing homework at home and like learning within this, this, the pace was a little too slow for me, but also I'm a very visual person. So all of the ways in which I was like receiving this information just, just didn't process well with my brain. And so what happened is I rejected the shit out of it. I maintained the kind of like this A, B, and C uh, level of like how well I performed in school, but I started rebelling. Like I was getting in trouble. I was getting suspended all of the time. I would get in fights or, you know, I remember I had one experience where I was in the bathroom and set kind of like the bathroom on fire and I got called into the principal's office because uh, they found out by somebody else telling on me that I almost kind of burned the school down because there was like a whole fire drill afterwards. But I had started the whole thing. And so that's just to give you a little glimpse on how much trouble I was getting into at a young age. Later on in my 20s, I realized, you know, I was like, whoa, I'm like neurodivergent. And that's why these systems of authority never really worked for me because the way that my brain was processing information just didn't work with the way that information was being presented to me. I kind of diagnosed myself with undiagnosed ADHD. So I think the symptoms of my traumatic stress look very similar and also mimic ADHD symptoms. So till this day, I really don't know if I really do have ADHD or this is just the symptoms of the level of trauma I was experiencing at a young age. And so fast forward, you know, into my 20s, I started going through a very deep spiritual awakening. It actually got triggered when I was about 17. So as I shared earlier, I was kind of camouflaging to my environments. I didn't really know who I was. I didn't really know who I wanted to become because there was nothing in my environment that was kind of supporting that. So when I was 17, I just stopped. I just stopped trying to care. I just stopped trying to camouflage. I just stopped trying to make friends because I felt like it was all a lie. I remember after a graduation that I had had in about, I think it was eighth grade. And there was this guy that I thought was like my friend. And I remember at the end of graduation, I was like, you know, hey guys, what are you guys going to, what are you guys going to go do? Like, what are you guys up to? And then he said to me something very rude. And he was like, you know, nowhere with your lame ass or something like that. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, whoa, like none of these people are really my friends. And I remember it just dawned on me, like it made so much sense in that moment. I was like, none of these people are really my friends. I just see them five times a week. 
that awareness kind of carried into my high school years. And so when I was at my senior year, I had changed schools again. So I moved around a lot, but I also changed schools a lot. And so senior year, I changed schools again. And I was like, I'm not, I'm done. I was just exhausted. I was like, I'm changing schools again. Now I have to make new friends. Now I have to adapt to the environment. Now I have to camouflage myself into being the cool kid. Because that's what I would do. I would be the popular kid. I'll be the cool kid. But I would I could put on a persona that really wasn't me. I was just exhausted. I was exhausted, like energetically, spiritually. I was just mentally exhausted by having to do that. And so what happened was that I just stayed to myself and I was very, very confused. I remember just being very confused on who I was and what I wanted to do, like most kids after high school. Um, but this opened a really deep gate inside of me to like really explore. And it was really the perfect soil for my spiritual awakening. And so when I was like 18, I came across a book that kind of just like showed itself to me. And uh, this book was written by Lama Govinda. And the book is Creative Meditation and Multidimensional Consciousness. And this book I remember finding in the library at the college that I was going to, and it just like found me. Like, I don't know what I was doing in that section. I just opened it and I loved the cover. If you see the cover, it has this beautiful mandala and it's just gorgeous. And I remember just like resonating with that mandala. And I grabbed the book and I never give it back to the public library. <laughs> But I was reading that book and I was learning a lot. And at that time, another strange book found me called Man's Higher Consciousness by Hilton Hotema. And this book also found me in the same library. And this book actually talks about breatharianism. And at that time, I didn't know what the fuck breatharianism was. And social media wasn't popular. So you didn't have these fake gurus talking about what breatharianism is. I opened it and was learning a lot about what the human body is capable of and at this time i was still going to church i was still kind of like tied to my parents ideas of god spirituality in the world and so these books were actually helping me break free and create my own ideas and find things that really resonated with me so from there i started to also merge these understandings with things that i was learning things that i had learned in through christianity and that gave me a whole completely different lens through which I saw spirituality and religion. I started taking apart like religious teachings. I started taking apart. I was very fascinated by the book of Revelations. That was my favorite book to read as a kid because I saw it as a comic book. I, and I loved the comic books. I loved the anime, but I was seeing it as a comic book, these events. And I would kind of, I had a very vast imagination. So I would take myself to these places. I would just take myself there completely. And I was very curious to know, like, what was this really about? Kind of when I was about 21, 22, my spiritual waking had really, really deepened to where I had expanded my sense of God into a very intimate one. And so I had stopped seeing God as kind of like a separate entity in the sky and started feeling it more as like a uh, an embodied experience. And from there, I actually started to have a lot of like deep mystical uh, spiritual experiences. And that led me to have like 
different levels of communication with uh, beings that I refer to as like my ancestors, angels, guides, and deities that we read about in different books from different cultures. So I was having interactions, I was having experiences with what I felt were bodhisattvas, uh, beings that appeared to me as a Buddha, archangels that engaged and saved me from so, so many uh, dark and painful experiences. And also one that's still very near and dear to me that I work with still on a daily, Kalima, uh, has really, really transformed my relationship to my own ego, but also the relationship to my masculinity. And I found a lot of healing in this relationship because I think for men, especially when we have a connection to a divine mother, I think that's where we find that unconditional acceptance, that unconditional love, and that unconditional support that we desperately crave from our mothers. And so when we have this, we realize that this space is, it, it, you can't exhaust the divine mother with your love, with your plea, with your suffering, with your needs. You can't exhaust her. She's always available. She's always there and she's always present. And she can never abandon you. She's not separate from you. So that relationship has been very, very healing for me. Um, and also the one with the earth. So I was, I was having these experiences where I was communicating with the earth at a level that I didn't even know I was capable of. I think women, for sure, I mean, they have a womb, but I didn't know as a man that I could commune with the earth on such an intimate level. I didn't know I could speak to the trees on such an intimate level. And so with all of these experiences, I actually, at a certain point, it lasted for about nine months up until I went to even Mexico and spent some time in Mexico for about six months. I was traveling back because I recognized I didn't remember anything from my childhood, but I told myself there was like a message that I received that told me that if you don't remember anything from six right? You, if you remember something from seven, that seven-year-old you can lead you to six and that six-year-old you can lead you to five and that five-year-old you can lead you to four and so on and so on. So I was like, whoa, okay, let me just connect to like how far I can remember. And so the more I started doing this, I actually didn't remember anything from my childhood, but there was a version of myself that I met that actually took me further back than I actually asked them to. And they brought me to the place inside of myself that existed before my conditioning. And in that state, I was very, very intimate with my unbreakable wholeness. Union analysts talk about this, but I was with the divine child. So I could see the part of myself that was actually free of the conditioning that imprinted like how I saw the world. And so that liberation from that conditioning lasted for about nine months. And so I spent about three months in Atlanta. And then I was just like, I was, I was in that state. And I was like, oh my God, I have to go to Mexico. And so I spent six months in Mexico where I was just very, very connected to myself, but everything around me. And I was interacting with animals on a very different level. I was going to sacred sites and engaging with land spirits and communicating with the land on a very, very, very intimate level. And um, 
and I spent some time with this indigenous tribe. These uh, it was like an, a Mayan indigenous tribe called the uh, Lacuandones people, and I spent some time there in Belenque. And they took me to the jungle. I met their elder shaman, and uh, they they taught me a lot. And they taught me a lot. And at the space that I was at at that time, I experienced all of it as if it was like a psychedelic experience. Like being in the jungle was a psychedelic experience. I could see the the trees very differently than I've ever seen trees. I could being in Palenque, I was very high in the mountains. So the quality of oxygen was very, very like fresh. And also there wasn't a lot of towers and cities. So I was, I was in a very natural environment and natural by like the lack of like dense energies, the lack of five, five G or the lack of EMF. I was just very in a natural, pure environment. And so with that, it just heightened my state. So while the time I was in Palenque, I was having a lot of like intense spiritual experiences. And a lot of them were just me and the earth speaking. And so when I was in the jungle, I had this last piece of the initiation that I was in. And it was me and the jungle connecting. And that piece was so important because I didn't realize that I was afraid of the earth's darkness. So I realized that I had always gone to the forest during the day, but I never gone to the forest during the night, right? Because I was afraid of how wild mother nature was when the sun was not. And so during that time, I was like able to heal that and embrace the fullness of mother earth, but also embrace the fullness of myself. And so we were there in the jungle, like really, really late at night. We started earlier in the day, but then like sun went down and it was very dark. And, you know, I mean, there's jaguars in this jungle. There's, you know, a bunch of creatures and monkeys and beasts that will, you know, tear me apart. But in that, I found so much safety. And I remember at the end, our guide and, you know, one of the 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 the, the elders and the leaders of the tribe asked me and he was like hey do you want to stay for a moment we're gonna leave the jungle and we're just gonna leave you with the jungle like we just want to kind of help you solidify this moment for yourself and i remember in that moment i was like there's no sense of fear there's no sense of like danger i was like very very happy they said that and proposed that and so they walked and left the jungle and i was there by myself in this pitch black darkness and I'm just facing the jungle. Like I'm standing there at the center and looking at it and just all of its wildness and all of its beauty. And I was just standing there and I can't really see much. You know, it was like very dark. It was probably like maybe 12 uh, midnight or something like that. And I stared and looked into the jungle and closed my eyes for about maybe two, two, three minutes. And I prayed and I cried and I just thanked the jungle. I thank the earth for holding me. I thank the earth for just bringing me back to myself on such a deep level. And from that, I left and, you know, uh, was in like a very ecstatic state for, for some time. All of that was another initiation that I needed because I had to heal my relationship with the earth. Uh, and so from there, that really started to heal a lot of my brokenness 
like my lack my lack of wholeness my lack of this felt sense of wholeness actually started to kind of be mended in a way by these connections that i was having with what i felt was god and what i felt was a divine presence and so this continued till i was about 25 26 like really intensely and in between then kind of around 24 i started to experiment with plant medicine and so that just took it to a different level and i remember after my last plant journey that was maybe about three four years ago i was told that this was going to be my last journey and i told myself that would be my last journey because i had understood something through these these experiences and one was that I was only supposed to be using these as tools to help me remember my own innate abilities. And one of the things that I remember receiving as a message was that, you know, this wasn't an altered state of consciousness. This was my natural state of consciousness. And that kind of reinforced to me that everything else that I do outside of that state that I was in was actually altered. Like everything that I do and interact with the world was an altered state. I had to alter myself to engage with the world in such a way. I had to alter my consciousness to see things as separate from myself. So from that understanding, I learned that I had to like train myself to achieve these states, to achieve these states of awareness completely sober. And from those experiences, I realized that that was possible, that I didn't have to use this as something to achieve those states. And so from there, my level of meditation actually really deepened from before I started experimenting with plant medicine. Um, and then after, I, I, it just deepened to a whole different, different degree. And so from there, I realized as well that I had to earn some of the things that I was experiencing. Like I had to earn the state that I had experienced. And I wanted to earn it. You know, I felt like I had I had made it to heaven, but I didn't earn my seat there. And so I started doing like a lot of a lot of deep work. And that deep work brought me to shadow work. And so that's when my journey got very, very interesting, because during the time that I was like, even before the plant medicine, even just when I was connecting to God on a deeper level from this light masculine, light feminine energy, right? Which means like, oh, all I see is beauty. Um, the world is beautiful. And, you know, there's only light in the world. And so that was what I needed at that time, because I had went through a lot of shit. And so it was very comforting to experience the beauty and just be surrounded by the the endless beauty in my experiences and the endless beauty within myself i was just like wow i'm just such an amazing person i'm so deserving of love and all of these things and so that was what i needed at that time and there was a different phase there was a different level of initiation that i went through that required me to actually deep dive into my shadows and that required me to put down the love and light stuff and actually get very muddy get very dirty get very real with myself. And through that, I discovered that I had a very strong tendency to dissociate from my reality. And so when I saw that, I could actually start to engage with that part of me that wanted to dissociate from a conscious place. 
because it was a reaction to the unsafety that I felt in my experience, right? So when I don't feel safe, when I don't feel comfortable in my environment, I'm going to dissociate, right? I'm not going to be here. So I'm just going to exit out and leave my body. And that was something that I was very, very accustomed to doing because I was experiencing a lot of abuse in my household, um, a lot of verbal abuse. I remember my, my, my dad sitting down, me and my siblings, every night, every evening, and he would just rant for about three, four hours talking about how upset he was at us and how bad we were or how we were failing or why we weren't meeting up to his standards or you know why we were going to go to hell or whatever it is. But this was a continuous thing. Like, I that never stopped happening, you know. So I learned to dissociate very, very quickly, right? Because if I'm in that environment, that doesn't feel good in my body being told how like unworthy I am, especially if I'm being told I'm unworthy of God's love. So I learned to dissociate. And so when I was doing this deep shadow work, I started to find all of the ways in which I dissociated from my reality. And that brought me to looking at myself on a deeper level, just as a man, and also looking at my relationships, like who's in my relationships and like, why were they here? Like, why are these people speaking to me this way? Like, why are we interacting in this, in this way? And so the shadow work was really, I, I really, like I gave it my all. I mean, it's a, it's a lifelong commitment, but I really went deep. I went so deep to discover shadow, to engage with shadow that I was, at that time, I was also very deep into metaphysics, but I also was very deep into occultism and esoteric teachings. So at that time, I was like merging all of this understanding with myself, like my rabbit hole with myself, but also my rabbit hole with the world, with the cosmos and what had happened throughout, you know, the the time that we have been on earth, right? And so I really, really went, I really dived really deep um, and found myself learning a lot about like occultism and esoteric symbols and dark occultism and, you know, black magicians and white magicians and a lot of things that at that time I really needed to understand. And I entered into certain practices and certain rituals that helped me engage with that part of myself from a very conscious level. But from that, I developed this like resilience to shadow and darkness to where it didn't actually frighten me. And that was a very, very big gift that I received because I formed a relationship with something that I call the angel of death. The angel of death for me is the part of me that welcomes endings, the part of me that welcomes grief, the part of me that can hold my grief, the part of me that can mourn an ending and see a beginning all within the same moment. And so... I formed a very deep and intimate relationship with that part of myself that I just referred to as the angel of death. And I remember as a kid, I think I was about 17, 18, and I have a letter that I wrote to death when I was like 17. And this letter just details like things that I apologized for to this angel. And I, in the letter, I say, you know, I'm so sorry. I didn't really see like who you were. I was 
mistaken by your masks and believing that you take a life away, not recognizing that you actually bring us closer to life. And so what I believe about death is it's not an end to life. It's a function of life itself, that it's only in the experience of death, the confrontation with our own mortality, that we actually are pulled closer to life. Because when you think about people on their deathbed, when you think about people that realize they have six months left to live, they are most intimate with life, the beauty, the gratitude, and the grief that they've been blocking for so long. So it's only death that actually brings that wisdom forth if somebody's not resisting it, right? If somebody's open to that wisdom, they actually get very, very, very close to themselves and very close to the people around them. They apologize for things that they've, you know, hidden away for years. They confess their deepest, darkest truths. They embrace their families and, you know, they, they, they embody a different level of presence. And I realized that that was all the gift of death. That was the gift that death provides. And so this helped me a lot when I was going through these layers of shadow because I was constantly, constantly, constantly dying. I was constantly going through these deaths. I was constantly rebirthing myself and I was plunging myself consciously into these dark nights. I was like, whoa, okay, facing something else, I have to go here. But I could experience those depths without being scared of them. I could experience those depths without wanting it to end. I could experience those depths without looking at the time like, wow, I've been here for three months. I could drown myself in it without any fear of the darkness that I was experiencing, without any fear of when is the light going to come out? When is the sun going to come up? When is spring going to open? So now into the work I do now, that actually is that time that I spent in that initiation. It felt like an initiation with the angel of death itself, that in that time, I actually discovered a lot of the things that I'm now sharing and doing with men and women. And there's so much shadow that's not really explored by us as a collective. And that is reflective in our relationship with death. We do not have a good relationship with death as a collective, right? We celebrate beginnings, we celebrate births, but when somebody's dying, we want it to stop. We don't want them to go. We have a very hard time celebrating the death of somebody, right? And some cultures do, you know, like my family, uh, my tradition my tradition is we celebrate, we have parties, we get together, we gather around. Um, and so, and I know in other cultures as well, but just collectively, when you think of the end of a relationship, when you think of the ending of something, right, cutting ties or just bringing something to its death, like it's very hard for us to do. And it's also very hard for us to grieve because our culture doesn't really support us in the grieving process. Like it doesn't allow us to experience the level of grief that we are blocking and preventing ourselves from experiencing. And I feel that our capacity to experience grief is also our capacity to experience transformation. As a society, as a collective, we really don't grieve as much as we should, honestly. Like we walk past animals dying all of the time, but we don't 
we're not intimate, we're not sensitive to the part of us that feels that pain of watching an animal get hit by a car, right? When it was just trying to cross the street or the pain of seeing the earth destroyed, acres of forest destroyed to build cities, to build malls. Like we don't, we're not intimate with that part of ourselves that's grieving that experience. And we're not intimate with a part of ourselves that's grieving the loss of connection. We're not grieving that. We're not intimate with that part of ourselves because our culture, as I said, doesn't really support the grieving process. And so for me, in that time was when I was forming a connection, a deep relationship with grief, with death, with all of these things, with endings. And so it led me into a lot of different rabbit holes, you know, and that was kind of centered around my own shit and the things that I was bringing forward into my relationships and the things that I was bringing forward into my life. So now I'm supporting men and going through that process. I think it's unique to each of us, but I think I, I think my work is really here to activate that process. I think the reason I went through such a deep initiation in that period was to support men through that time but to also be a catalyst for them to go through that. And that's why my work is kind of really around like men confronting their shadows. And that's why I talk about the things that I do because we have to look at that. We have to be real with ourselves and say like, what the fuck have we been doing while we were unconscious? Like what systems did we create when we were unconscious of our power? What things did we do when we were unconscious of our devotion and our service to the feminine when we were stopped respecting the feminine what the fuck happened during that time when i was asleep right and so for me i continuously go through that process where i just kind of wake up a little bit more like whoa okay that happened while i was asleep okay let's confront that let's address it let's you know grieve let's and make and let's make amends right and so for me it's about initiating men and women into that process to where you realize that you have been asleep in your relationships. There's no part of your conscious mind that has been online, right? And when you realize what took place while you were asleep, right? I think I'll stop it here. I shared a lot more than I usually do. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you can relate on some level. And if you have any more questions about my experience or anything that I went through, feel free to share it with me uh, via Instagram or via Twitter or via TikTok. I'll see you guys on the next one. Thank you so much for your time today and have a beautiful day. Have a beautiful evening. Peace.